Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chomping After Dark, the podcast where we spoil your favorite games and the occasional movie. Speaking of movies, tell me if you recognize this quote. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for you to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. It's been 20 years since I was first introduced to the world of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, and that quote, expertly delivered by Ian McKellen, still manages to give, give me chills. A movie that heavily influenced my personal tastes in what I enjoy, we are going to discuss The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, and it will be the extended edition. To say that I'm more excited than a puppy when you adopt it from a shelter is an understatement. But before we gush and gush, and that sounds not, that's not what I wanted to emphasize there. Before we talk about one of the greatest movies ever made for the next few hours, just a few quick reminders. If this is your first time here and you are loving what you are hearing, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to hear more from us, head over to SoreChomp.com, where we have more podcasts, written reviews of the newest titles, a merch store that has some of the coolest merch ever, completely unbiased there, and plenty more. Lastly, if you want to support us so we can continue to make wonderful content such as this and earn something in return, please consider going to patreon.com slash swordchomp where you will find a plethora of tiers to get additional and exclusive content such as access to a private Discord and Instagram, Patreon-exclusive podcasts, and much more. Okay, now that that's out of the way, let me introduce you to the crew who will be here for most, or the most epic of discussions today. First, let me introduce you to the Urukai Fluffer of Isengard, the Ring Wraith's horse dung cleaner, and the man who claims to know where the female Ents are because he's bed three of them, Rich Meister. Rich, how you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Some of you might better know me as the king under the mountain. Um, you know, some of that stuff seemed a little embellished back mm. there. I don't, I don't really know about all that. Uh, but... You and I have been I don't know which parts. planning this for a while. Um, I'm really excited to talk a little Tolkien here because I think Lord of the Rings, both the the you know su- the book series and the Peter Jackson adaptation that we will be discussing here, um, are near and dear to both of our hearts. Uh, you know, do, this does well enough. I, I say we do an episodic uh, review of that uh, Amazon series when it starts. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really curious to see what that's going to be about. I know that there are some people kind of 
in the social media sphere complaining a little bit because there's the possibility of nudity being on there and people are like well that's not that's not original tolkien and fuck that show us frodo's if dick. you read the books there's some nudity in there show us frodo's dick or some nudity adjacent parts uh yeah no i i, I just don't like I can get the appreciation of, like, not wanting nudity for nudity's sake, but, like, be a fucking adult. Nobody gives a shit. Uh, also, my, the only person complaining that I, I agree with wholeheartedly is Elijah Wood, who has said strictly he doesn't understand why they're calling it the Lord of the Rings if it takes place in the second age of Middle-earth. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely right. Um, I think I think it's kind of like... What we've discussed in the past with Assassin's Creed, like that franchise where basically there's no major need to really, like, it doesn't really need to be called Assassin's Creed at this point other than the present day connections with what's going on because yeah. at this point they feel so different from each other. They have similar easy. mechanics and everything, but they feel so different. It's brand uh, recognizability. It's retaining certain UI things that are strict to that universe. Uh but it remains to seen how bogged down something can get from that. Like, who's to say? Who's to say? Like, I understand you're yeah. you're making something that's set in the Lord of the Rings universe, and we don't even know what the official title of the series is going to be yet. So, remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they might just be slating it as the Lord of the Rings it's TV just, show, and they might even change the name. Uh, yeah, I heard that secret. It's actually just going to be a TV show where once a week Stephen Colbert reads one hour of the Cimmerillion aloud. Honestly, I would not be um, sad about that. I know he's such a huge fan, and I always love when the actors and actresses from that that uh, trilogy go on his show because just to watch him gush about it is, I would imagine how any one of us would react. So yeah, that's it's very authentic, uh, and I appreciate that. He is such an authentic nerd for that in particular. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. And, uh, well, thank you for being here, Rich. And I am Shay Layton, the Prancing Pony's bar wench, and Denethor's leg stool, which you will learn who that is in the future podcasts. So, from this point on, as is customary around these here parts, there will be spoilers. If you somehow haven't seen the trilogy or read the books, now is the time to dedicate the rest of your day or night to watching the first movie. It's 4.5 hours long. So you're in for a pretty long night or day. But now, turn the lights down low. Slip into something more comfortable. Have your weapon of choice by your side just in case an orc sneaks into your place of residence. And sip on a nice, tasty beverage as we tell you a tale by the fireplace. The movie opens with Galadriel narrating the history of Middle-earth. She describes how the lords of the elves, dwarves, and men were given rings of power. During this time, Sauron, the Dark Lord, forged a secret ring, the One Ring. The ring allowed him to dominate the other rings. In order to stop Sauron, men and elves created an alliance to defeat the forces of Mordor. During the fight, Isildur of Gondor severed Sauron, Sauron's finger with the One Ring, which caused Sauron to revert to a spirit form. After Sauron was defeated, the Third Age of Middle-earth began. The Ring's influence overtook Isildur 
and he kept the ring. He was later killed by orcs, who heard the ring's calling, causing the ring to fall into a river and be lost for over 2,500 years. Smeagol, a halfling, found the ring and hid away for five centuries, becoming Gollum. By happenstance, Bilbo Baggins comes across the ring, unaware of its power, and takes it. So I remember the first time I watched this feeling like that there was a lot of information thrown at the viewer at the beginning. But what was cool was that it didn't feel overwhelming. To this day, I still think it is one of the strongest beginnings of a movie I've ever seen. Do you remember how you felt and thought the first time you watched this intro, Rich? Uh, God, that is such a time and place question. Um, I don't think... Yeah, I know. It invokes like a very specific memory because you're kind of strapping in for whatever it is you're in store here for, for because we didn't really have fantasy films of this scope at the time. Like, and, and what I mean by that is like there have been big sweeping fantasy movies before, but nothing with this level of production and this level of effect that was like this, this Hollywood fucking blockbuster that ended up uh, rocking the world. And if I could step into, like, semi-tumultuous territory for a second here, I think a big um, part of that was this movie came out, like, it was one of the first, like, big major blockbusters after 9-11. And I think it was Mm. more successful because of that, because people were looking for, like, this movie had absolutely nothing to do with reality. Like, it was a complete and total escape into a world nothing like our own, and I, I think that helped propel it. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It was, yeah, it was... I didn't even think about that, how it came out at around that time, and um, just how important that, that kind of like, was for time had us passed. as a nation during that time. Time had passed, but yeah, it was definitely during the period where it was like people were starting to try and feel normal again. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And I don't remember. No, that's not true. I do remember the first time I went and saw it with my, uh, my father, the first one with my father. Same for me. And, um, yeah, I went with yeah, your yeah. dad. My, my father had went, my, my father went to see it, um, with a family friend during, uh, during the, uh, premiere of it mm. in our city, in our small city area. And so he's like, dude, you need to go see this movie. And so he brought me there uh, to see it a few days later. And man, was I just blown away. Was I absolutely blown away. But that intro, yeah, I just remember being so sucked in. I mean, there's so much happening there. There's a lot to unpack. just top notch. Like the acting is insane. This uh, special and visual effects are phenomenal. The soundtrack by Howard Shore just so sweeping in that opening sequence, like everything that is happening, you could tell just like from the fresh out the gate, right when that movie starts, shit's about to be amazing. And you're about to go in for one of the greatest cinematic adventures you will ever go under. So I think, I think, I think think what's funny, you mentioned the soundtrack and like how immediately grabbing it is. 
I think like the musical score for the Lord of the Rings trilogy is like one of those few things that came along much later that I consider like up there with recognizable scores that just immediately evoke the feeling of a film in the same way like Star Wars and Indiana Jones are uh, of that ilk. Yeah, 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 no, exactly. Like it, man, it is like a, it is a timeless classic. I could listen to any part of one of those soundtracks from any one of the movies and know exactly what scene it's coming from and just everything. And I'm just immediately transported to back being a teenager back in the movie theater watching just these think films. about like the because, use yeah, of I wouldn't saw these films like, and like, Oh God, yeah. so good. So good. We could do a whole podcast yeah, on that. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's a master. Cl- it really is a master class. If you were to study this, this score for these three films, it is a master class um of making music for cinema so i'm sure i'm sure it influenced other things and i'm sure there were things that influenced it but i think of some of kind of the the uh war epics and some of the medieval epics and stuff that came after it and uh i guarantee that there was some influence from the lord of the rings soundtracks and yeah like you said that's a different podcast entirely so yeah let's move on it is 60 years later, and we see Gandalf the Grey, Bilbo's friend and wizard, greeted by Frodo Baggins, Bilbo's nephew. Bilbo tells Gandalf that he plans to leave the Shire after the day's celebration of his 111th birthday. He plans to leave everything, including the ring, to Frodo. After Gandalf inspects the ring, he tells Frodo to keep it hidden and secret. Gandalf leaves the Shire to gather information regarding the ring. He learns that Gollum was captured by Sauron's orcs and interrogated, revealing the location of the ring and who has it. Gandalf returns in time to tell Frodo to leave the Shire. Frodo's gardener and friend, Samwise Gamgee, both leave the Shire to meet at Bree. Gandalf goes to meet Saruman in Isengard for guidance. However, Sauron reveals he is in league with Sauron. Did I say Sauron? Saruman. Let me double check. There's, there's a Saruman lot of bad reveals, guys with S names. Is it true? Saruman reveals he is in league with Sauron and that the Nazgul, the nine former men leaders tricked by Sauron, I keep wanting to say Sauron, I don't know why, by Sauron are on their way to find the ring and kill Frodo. So I don't know about you, but the first time I watched this without having read the books, the betrayal of Saruman took me by surprise. I think this is expertly accomplished by how Gandalf talks about him and their initial meeting outside Isengard. I think this speaks to a larger point, that even though this movie has a lot to pack into a 4.5-hour movie, and if you don't watch the extended edition, it's about a 3.5-hour movie, it takes moments, like I just mentioned, to build incredible pace. Obviously, there are a lot of factors contributing to to this, like the soundtrack, set design, costume design, etc. But how did you feel about the pacing of this movie overall, Rich? Uh, I feel like the pacing uh, was definitely keeping in league. Like, this movie is a slow burn in a lot of respects, but once it ramps up, it, it ramps up really, really properly. Like, it, it gets you... You're invested even when almost nothing is happening. Um, 
and it, it does some mm. good work with pacing for what is probably the slowest point in the novels um <laughs> because uh I, I don't know if you want to get into this at all i want to point out there's some some inconsistencies from the novels in this first part that i do feel uh it's important to mention uh which is when when gandalf uh leaves to you know find out what he can about the ring initially for frodo you're giving the impression maybe it's like a few days in the film. He's gone for almost two decades in the books. <laughs> like Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He, I believe it's seventeen, 17 years, years, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, which the the movie does some, not get across, but it's it it's kind of inconsequential anyway. Um Another thing I wanted to note that is a little bit different in the books is the whole Frodo and Sam setting out thing. They immediately try and make it seem like Frodo and Sam are are very close, which is not really the case in the book. In fact, uh, Frodo is leaving with Merry and Pippin in the book because Pippin is his cousin, um, and he's friendly with the two of them. And Sam kind of gets swept up in it and is like the fuddy-duddy, like, we need to do what Gandalf says and uh, and get going kind of guy. Mm. Yeah, exactly. There's so much that happens in the book to make it actually much slower paced um for the sequences basically from here up until they reach um the council uh, of elrond yeah, the house there's of elrond, so yeah. much that happens in there and that's kind of and that's kind of what i was talking about there with the pacing like they have so much to pack into this movie and obviously they do a good they job of it they do a really good in. job of it i mean if you are a fan of the books yeah if you're a fan of the books you know a lot of the stuff that is left out obviously but I think they get the, the uh, for important those of you stuff who in. Are fans of the movies? N- never read the books? Yeah, like they leave so many things out. But I think that they manage to capture, for the most part, the most important aspects of the book and some of the things that they change. Uh, maybe not as good, but for for the point of cinema, make it flow really well. And when they and, get to uh, the Hobbit, they yeah, decide like to do the exact saying. opposite and just start adding stuff. Yeah, yeah, but that's a yeah. I hope to never do that trilogy because that's a discussion for three other podcasts, but I really, Hey, the first one is real, uh, real good. It really starts to fall apart after that. Yeah. 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 Um, but no, I think the pacing is, uh, really well done. Obviously I wrote the question, so it's kind of a loaded question for me because I think the pacing is really well done. I know a lot of people like the second and third movies better, but I actually really, I think the first movie is my favorite movie between the three uh probably because it's the first one i saw is a large part of it but also because i really like that they're like the plans are being laid everything's being built up built up there's still action there's the you're seeing kind of everything like you're you're seeing the beginnings of this amazing journey and uh i I don't know it's really poignant for me it sticks with me even 20 years later. Totally. So I, uh, the, the pacing is such a big part of it too, because it never feels like to me, I, and I'm sure other people would disagree there, but the beginning, um, the first movie, it doesn't really feel like it drags to me at all. It feels like all the information we're getting there, everything that's happening there is just happening. And it's happening at the, exactly the pace. I, it I needs also to. think that's helped and by anyone who speaks like, Oh, sorry. I was gonna say I, th- I think that's also helped by like the setting, like and the way Peter Jackson kind of brought Hobbit into life. Um, it adds like this liveliness and this sense of world building uh, that's showing you only 
the, a small corner of a huge world you're going to get to see, but it's done so impressively. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I think about the um, part we're about to talk about and just how fast everything happens during this the sequence that we're about to talk about. And to me, it's just crazy that anyone would say these movies are boring or slow when, uh, because this this next sequence happens so rapidly and so much happens in such a short amount of time. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit perplexing. But anyways, let's move on. Let's move on because uh, I love this next part. On the road. Fellow hobbits Merry and Pippin join Frodo and Sam, guiding them from the danger of the Nazgul to Bree. When they arrive at the Prancing Pony, the inn where they were to meet Gandalf, he hasn't arrived. A mysterious ranger named Strider tells them that Gandalf is not coming and they must keep moving with his guidance. They avoid main roads as they move towards Rivendell, the home of the elves. But on Weathertop, an ancient kingdom, they are ambushed by the Nazgul. Even though Strider fends them off, Frodo is stabbed by a Morgul blade. A blade that slowly turns him into a wraith. The party is found by Arwen, an elf of Rivendell, and Strider's lover. She whisks Frodo off to Rivendell. As she is almost there, she is ambushed by the Nine Nazgul. She summons floodwaters to send the Nazgul down the river. Frodo is taken to Rivendell and healed by the elves. When Frodo awakens, he is met by Gandalf, who tells him of what happened with Saruman, where he was attacked and interrogated, but he was rescued by a great eagle. So now I think... It is as good of a time as any to marvel at the world-class casting of this movie. Victoria Burroughs, Amy and John Hubbard, Liz Mullane, and Anne Robinson, I want to say, well done. You couldn't have possibly done a better job. Every actress and actor in this movie plays their parts perfectly. This movie was my real first interest into theater and acting which i later explored in high school now rich i know that you also have some theater experience can you talk about if and how this movie and the performance of the cast influenced that curiosity uh i think it definitely left um like a, a sort of imprint on me even maybe i didn't i was young enough that i didn't realize it at the time uh like i think back to as i got a little bit older and like reading all these uh reports about like acting on set for that film and how like vigo uh mortensen who played strider slash aragorn uh in the film was like straight up camping during the production like he would camp and fish for his dinner to like fully get into the character of this uh this wandering ranger which is f like fucking okay when I talk about method acting, like, and sometimes people can get, like, pissy about people are assholes when they method act. Like, no, what what he did, that's cool method acting. That's not, like, sending your co-star a dead rat because you're a schmuck. It's just cool. Yeah, yeah, it's like, I like when there's a level of method acting that is not over the top. You know, you have people, you you've, I'm sure people who are at all interested in, movies and cinema have heard stories about the 
extents that people like Christian Bale and Daniel Day Lewis go to. And I respect I respect their will their ability and their willingness to throw themselves into a role to essentially get the best performance. Jim Carrey um, and Man obviously on the Moon, there's so the, good at method acting. The negative side of him. that you look at who? Jim Carrey and Man on the Moon. <laughs> yeah, there's there's things like that, or there's things like you look at Heath Ledger, who threw him. You can argue threw himself too much into the Joker role, but I think like if you find a healthy balance and you do method acting, but you never take it to that point of going too far, I think that obviously it's Ego Mortensen and his method acting. Um, I I there there have been stories from the Hobbit like the people uh, the actors who played the Hobbits as well like uh, Elijah Wood who has talked about Viggo Mortensen on set and um I love when the actors and actresses talk about each other and during that time because it's like oh Viggo plays this like this badass character but he's this really soft spoken kind person off set one of the nicest people you'll ever meet um or they talk about um how. Uh, Orlando Bloom, the guy who plays Legolas, is like not this rigid character offset. He's like this party boy, like this crazy guy, and like yeah, um, it's it's it but really lends speaks... himself to the role so well. It, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it just speaks. It speaks to the cast that they assembled for this movie, and I think that's such obviously. It's one of the many aspects, but it's such a huge facet at as to why I think this movie works. I remember when I was younger, my dad complained about the casting of Arwen, uh, Liv Tyler. And to this day, I don't know if he still feels that same way, but I never understood it. Like even, even her, um, her role was awesome. I think it was a limited role, but I think the role she played was perfect and very, very she different from the role Arwen had in the screen, books. Yeah. Uh, the trilogy at least. Uh, that I'm not talking about like the supplementary material, like the Cimmerillion and the other material that kind of actually gives Arwen a lot more backstory. But um, yeah, I like yeah, I felt like sure. the, that Arwen um, played by Liv Tyler was well done. I I didn't have a single complaint about any of the roles because everybody just played their role so perfectly. You know, it's it's crazy, and this is. Um... Going off that, this is always a story I've kept in my pocket for a long time. I always think about about Vigo uh, Mortensen and what a great actor is he is and how considerate he is with his roles. He was sort of on top of the world around this time. And uh, he, a lot of people don't know this, was offered the role of Wolverine before Hugh Jackman. And he turned it down because he had his son, who was a big comic book fan, read the script. And he was like, this guy does not understand the X-Men. And his son is 100% correct because I do not like those Brian Singer movies. But it just kind of, it makes me laugh to think, but like that dude's that considerate with his roles. He's like, my son gets this. I'm going to ask him what he thinks. Yeah, yeah. Like, that, that's so cool that, I mean, I don't know if I would have turned down a big payday like that, but. Um, I think they ended up getting the right person for the role, regardless, anyways. Yeah, but, I think yeah, so. We'll never know what it would have been like with him. Who can say? Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, I mean, t- to answer my own question very succinctly, it had such a profound impact on me. Um, I remember one time uh, the the uh, drama teacher at the time. We I had three different drama teachers uh, at my school. 
and I was in the intermediate drama course during this this particular memory, and he was trying to recount this this scene um, that I quoted at the beginning where Gandalf and Frodo are in the mines of Moria, and Frodo's talking about not wanting to have come across the One Ring, wishing that none of it would have happened, and he was trying to quote this, and because obviously I was obsessed with these movies as a teen, um, a little bit more so than I am, am now, not to say that I don't love these movies as much as I did then, but I remember being able to quote that whole thing, and it ended up like we ended up making some, like talking about it in class and, you know, imitating some of the techniques because one of the things I, when I was younger, I didn't think about until seeing this movie is that Ian McKellen is so fucking amazing at just his diction and just the way he says things. Each word he says, nothing trails off. It, like, a lot of people, when they talk now, it kind of goes into that fry register down here, you know, obviously, uh, when you're kind of being lazy with your talking. He doesn't do any of that shit, right? Um, and each word he says, you understand perfectly because he enunciates everything so well. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. that's a big part of that is his stage acting um, Same could be said for Christopher Lee, who... Uh, again, su- like such a fucking commanding yeah. presence as Saruman. It- it's funny. I remember uh, earlier you mentioned saying like, "Oh, you know, you never saw that twist coming." But like, I probably didn't see it coming the first time. But also, that I think it is readable, even if you don't know it, because there's something like menacing about Christopher Lee's performance as Saruman when contrasted with Ian McKellen's performance as Gandalf. Is like this happy-go-lucky sort of almost mischievous wizard compared to this very rigid and, and again like commanding almost menacing presence that is saruman yeah yeah he he nails it like christopher lee rest in peace man i mean there there were so many reasons why he was perfect for the role of saruman only actor he, he to have known only... token oh uh, did i beat you to that's it? exactly what i was just gonna say <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what i was gonna say but not only that and I'm sure you know this. I don't know if you've ever listened to them. He was in a uh, symphonic power metal band in his late 80s up until his death. And it was a band called Charlemagne. Um, yep. Where he was singing fucking power metal, symphonic metal. And uh, it's epic. Like, it's not something I would pop on on a normal basis. But I've listened to it multiple times. It's pretty epic shit, man. That man is also um, a former member of MI6 and the inspiration for James Bond. Yep. Yep. Christopher what Lee, What a fucking man. life. Yeah. That guy truly lived life to the fullest. But, I mean, it's like, it's things like that. When you dig into the story of each cast member, it's just fascinating. And it's so inspirational. I, I, uh, there's the, obviously the recent podcast, The Friendship Onion, uh, that recently started with, uh, the actors from who played Marion Pippin, which would be Dominic Monaghan. Uh, sorry, let me say it in the correct order. It would be, um, uh, how did I forget his name? Guy who plays Mary. No, I don't. I yeah, don't. Yeah, that is Dominic, Dominic, Dominic Monaghan. And the guy who plays Monaghan? Pippin. What is his name, Rich? I, I can't believe I forgot this. I don't remember it either. So Terrible. I'm looking it up. I'm going to be torn apart in the comments for forgetting this. <laughs> Billy Boyd, Billy Boyd. I, I can't believe Billy I forgot. Thank you. Yeah, I can't believe I forgot that. That name just suddenly escaped my brain. 
Um, yeah, and Billy Boyd, they just recently started a podcast called The Friendship Onion, where they just talk about all, all sorts of things. They also talk about Lord of the Rings, and they had Elijah Wood on there, and they were talking about just, like, reminiscing on the set and everything, and how a lot of them used to go out and party, but um, on screen, you see Sam and Frodo have such an amazing friendship, but off screen, uh, not that they didn't, but... Uh, Sean Astin, who played Samwise Gamgee, he was a little bit older. He had a family and everything, so he wouldn't normally go out with these guys. And you would not expect that from the on-screen performance that he put there because it seemed like they were the best of friends, even off-screen. But um, not to say that they weren't, just obviously different priorities. So I, it just it's, it's shit like that when you find out those little details that kind of speak to how important these performances are and it always it kind of speaks to me like being a, even as a teacher you know sometimes like we're doing things in the classroom and i can't stand what i'm doing like because i feel like i'm a fucking clown at a circus but i also realize a lot of these things are what make uh the children really interested in what i'm teaching them right so i have to be able to be authentic in my teaching and in whatever kind of, I don't want to really call it a performance because performance implies that when I leave the classroom, I don't think about it ever again, or I don't necessarily, I, I it was not authentic per se. I, I kind of get that impression if I were to call like going into the classroom to teach a performance, but in some regards it is a performance because obviously, or it's performative rather in that I'm trying to get the students to really appreciate these aspects of English. And um, if I don't believe in what I'm teaching, if I don't believe in what I'm doing standing up there, the students aren't go are going to see through that and they're not going to appreciate that either. So I have to be able to, whether or not I necessarily truly believe in, um, or not truly believe, I truly appreciate what I'm teaching. If I, if I just at least in that moment believe in myself and my capabilities and my talents, then the students will also appreciate that and they will appreciate english that much more if that makes sense it's kind of a difficult weird thing to explain but it's it's funny that like this movie influenced that even for me to this day like i'm not up there years, thinking like friend. oh the lord of the rings influenced how i teach this grammar point but i mean i even think about things like ian ian mckellen and his perfect pronunciation of words I think about that shit on my da in my daily life, and I'm not joking about that. I think about, like, you know, the way I talk is lazy sometimes. If, if I was Ian McKellen, you know, like, <laughs> that kind of shit, you know, just the performances. If, if only. Yeah, right? But, all right, enough gushing. Let's move on to the next segment, because we have a lot of ground to cover. Mm -hmm. Enough gushing about these old men we love. Right? That's all I want to do is gush about that. Um, the leader of the Rivendell elves and Arwen's father, Lord Elrond, decides that keeping the ring in Rivendell would invite Sauron and Saruman to attack the elves. He holds the council with representatives of men, dwarves, and elves, with Gandalf, Frodo, and Sam also in attendance. The council decides that they must destroy the ring in the fires of Mount Doom the only place it can be destroyed. After some bickering, Frodo volunteers to carry the ring and the burden the whole way. He is joined by Gandalf, Sam, Merry, Pippin, Legolas the Elf, 
Gimli the Dwarf, Boromir of Gondor, Strider, whose real name is Aragorn, a Sealdur's heir and the rightful king of Gondor. Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king. <laughs> they form the Fellowship of the Ring. Before they depart, Frodo gets to speak with Bilbo, who now lives in Rivendell, one last time. Bilbo gives Frodo Sting his sword and his mithril shirt. So what I love about the council up until the moment that the Fellowship leaves Rivendell is that it is foreshadowed that this is a journey which no one will return the same, for better or worse. I think that it goes without saying that the journey they intend to pursue obviously has a very low chance of success, but the viewer gets the feeling that people will die and some people will mentally be far beyond repair. The movie has a surplus of emotional sequences. Rich, what is your personal favorite scene from The Fellowship of the Ring and why? God, um, from Fellowship in particular, um, I guess, is it okay yes. if I jump directly to the end of Fellowship for this? I mean, yeah. Uh, so mine would actually have to be Boromir, um, Boromir's death. Uh, it's just shot so well. Um, and, uh, I think at, at this point, um... Boromir's death becomes a little bit more tragic with the context of the, the rest of the trilogy and the things we learn about him and his family and his brother. Um, but there's just something about that scene that's like very impactful um, and the way the, the party is sort of losing itself in a way and, and splitting and fracturing all kind of centered around this big impact of Bor Boromir uh, getting killed by the Orakai. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I like 20 years later that scene still makes me cry. It's it's insanely sad and it still every time he's go, Boromir, why are you carrying that shield around? You're not even using it correctly. You idiot. <laughs> and it also starts the long well, I mean, he uses, uh, glory... he uses it right in the Mines of Moria. That's true. I guess that's true. Um it also continues his uh James Bond tradition of Sean Bean showing up to die and things. It's true. He does like dying. Well, I can't say he likes dying, but... He's been typecast as someone who dies? Yeah, right? Him and Leonardo DiCaprio had that kind of uh, back and forth about who is going to die more for a while. Yeah. But I think Sean Bean t takes the cake. Yeah, absolutely. He's just absolutely. such a good dyer. I mean... He's real good at it. Um, can I give you, I know you, I mean, you mentioned, uh, briefly, oh, and I want to throw a correction for you in it because people will correct you. So I want to throw this in. Sam is not present at the meeting. Mm -hmm. He is eavesdropping. That's true. He is not summoned I, to the council yeah. of Elrond. Well, him, and you and know Mary people would Pippen. correct you. Him and yes, Mary and yes. Pippin. No, yeah. but you specifically said he was, uh, he was at the meeting with, with the people. So I wanted to get oh, yeah, in yeah, and yeah. save your skin there. Um, and I also wanted to supplement no, no, a, a that's, little. That's a fair correction. Story from my background and my my D and D experience. You mentioned uh, Frodo getting Sting here, his sword. Um, infamously, I think this has been done to death at this point in D and D. But one of my favorite magic items to slip in has been on a table of mine for that game for a long time, which is a sword a sword called Stung that glows blue when one particular goblin is near. 
<laughs> that that is awesome. That is awesome. Stung. And then you're gonna make the next one called Stang. Yeah, exactly. And it's gonna and be it turned into a car when, when a, a car is nearby. Near. <laughs> In a D and D campaign? No, um, get a little wacky with it. Yeah, wacky tobacco with it. I think honestly, my favorite scene is the one I quoted at the very beginning. Um, just the way everything has led up to that point. Obviously, things are have been going wrong for the fellowship um nothing nothing's been going correctly which we're about to we're about to get into but basically um they set out they're walking they are spied on by the crabine from dunlin which are the crows uh sent by saruman so they decide to take the pass of karadras i can't pronounce that correctly it's probably i think as close as i'm going to be able to get which is the icy pass of moria and then, yeah, then they go to the mines of Moria, and just, like, nothing has gone right for them at all, um, which is a juxtaposition to what you would think would happen, because you have all these representatives from the good folk of uh, Middle-earth, and you think, like, things would go well, and nothing has gone well up until this point, and Frodo is just kind of laying it all out there, you know, like, one minute he was in the Shire celebrating... His uh, uncle's 111th birthday, things were simple. You know, he was in the woods reading a book, smoking pipe weed. Actually, that was Marion Pippin, not Frodo. Um, Frodo you know, was just down, down relaxing and enjoying. Yeah, I'm sure he did. And the next moment, he's being told that he has this ring that decides the fate of the world. And he has to go on this journey. And then he's being attacked by these spirits. And then he's stabbed. And, like, he's just like, Dude, fucking, what the hell? You know, like, I mean, he's sitting there, like, basically, like, what the hell did I just get thrust into? Yeah, how did, uh, and how then did this all Gandalf's happen to like, me? Yeah, and Gandalf's like, look, I mean, this, this shit happens all the time to people who don't expect it. Like, bad shit happens, and it's a, about how we handle it and how we persevere and how we look at the situation. Like, yeah, he's he, he doesn't say, like, you know what, you're you're complaining when you shouldn't be it's he's like yeah bad shit happens so what are you gonna do about it and he does it in such a motivating way and such a comforting way and it's just obviously that scene the way in mckellen delivers it and even the way uh elijah wood delivers like the despair he's feeling in that moment is just so fat phenomenal and then i love coming out of it when uh ian mckellen's like oh it's that way. And it, like it it's such a simple way to bring you out of that emotionally charged scene. And back to driving basically the plot he, forward, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um I think that that for me is my favorite scene because like I even think about that scene in my daily life. I come back to that scene a lot. It even gives you um, your first glimpse of Gollum shuffling in the dark, so that's always fun too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's so many scenes you can pick from this there's movie, a, to be uh, honest with you. Th- there's a line read in that section uh, as they're entering Moria that for some reason a co-worker of mine always come. Him and I talk about Lord of the Rings a lot. We always come back to this. Occasionally, he'll just, like, poke in my office and look at me and be like, and they call it a mine. <laughs> and I find <laughs> that line. It's such a great Gimli line. <laughs> that is a great line. I would love that. 
I would love I would love to be able to like inside joke quote Lord of the Rings with my coworkers, but uh unfortunately most Japanese people don't know what Lord of the Rings is. I'm sure you so can find mo- more that. than a few, but it, I don't think it's as culturally important. No, no, definitely not. And even now like the younger generations don't know what they're starting to not know what that movie is and it's kind of depressing me. <sighs> I can't kind of inform them. Just have like a Yeah, just like you know what? Just cancel all the other classes that these kids are supposed to have to. They have math and Pete. No, I'm sorry. We're going to have a Lord of the Rings four and a half hour marathon. The kids can't sit this. They will sit this long. They have to. It's part of their midterm. Performances. That's right. They have to be able to recite uh, the Ian McKellen dialogue word for word. Do you know what all? Or they don't pass. Do you know what all of the Lord of the Rings trilogy Legolas only says like two sentences to Frodo? Who? Legolas. That's true. Yeah, he says jack shit to him. Yeah, they only speak like two words to each I other w- in three films. It's kind of amazing when you think about it. Yeah, 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 for sure. And it's kind of funny because those guys were actually fairly good friends off the set. Like they would party together and stuff. So, oh, I'm sure. Pretty funny. Yeah. But let's go ahead and uh, press forward, shall we? After being thwarted by Saruman, the Fellowship elect to go over Karadraz Mountain. And if if I pronounce that incorrectly, please don't kill me on social media. I'm trying my best here. I'm not that into it. (laughs) I'm doing my best. But Saruman again stops them, forcing them through the mines of Moria. Days of traversing through the dark, dangerous tunnels, Gimli eventually finds the tomb of the dwarves and his brethren. With a mistake from a clumsy Pippin, fool of the Took, the fellowship is attacked by goblins and a cave troll. One brutal battle later, they manage to escape the tomb as they flee through the mines. They almost escape, but are confronted by Durin's bane, a Balrog. Gandalf holds the Balrog off while the rest of the Fellowship escapes to the exit. He casts Durin's bane into a dark chasm beneath them. But at the last second, the Balrog pulls Gandalf in with him. Now, Rich, I have a confession. Tell me. I know that you have been asking and asking. You've been dying to know. Here it is. This movie is the first movie where I cried in public. I, re- I remember seeing it with my father and my family's friends, and this moment happened. Suddenly, tears were falling, and one of my stepmother's friends was laughing at me for it. Don't worry, I never saw her again. But to this day, this, st- this scene still stirs feelings of sadness. There are a lot of factors that contribute to this, but over the years, I discovered why this scene affected me so much. The soundtrack. Howard Shore masterfully crafted one of the best soundtracks, if not the best, to these three movies. It's years later, but if I hear a song from one of the three soundtracks, I know exactly which part of the movie it's from and what the music intends to elicit emotionally from the viewer. 
a lot so of drums here. I know we've talked about it a little bit, but can you talk for a few moments about how important this soundtrack is to the trilogy and why music is so important to cinema in general? Totally. Um, mu- music is insanely important because it does a very good job of setting a mood and helping to elicit a certain emotion from people. Um, this whole sequence with the orcs and the cave troll and the bal- balrog handle all of that so masterfully and earlier we talked about how this was like the first big fantasy epic of this size this scene alone proves it like these sweeping scenes as they're descending this like uh collapsing stone staircase and like hordes of orcs uh funneling out of the dark and then finally the the balrog making its presence known which for anyone who's not super familiar with tolkien and here's one of those things like people who passively watch these movies are probably like big monster cool it's so much more insane than that what this thing is is in the in the lore of Tolkien's Middle Earth universe. A Balrog is a literal demon. It's base, it's a fa- a literal fallen angel. <laughs> They're trying to take a shortcut yeah. through a through a mountain pass and they end up fighting a literal demon. Yep. But yeah, it, it, it's I mean obviously because the movie can't go too much into the lore of what a Balrog That's what the is, but yeah, is it's for. so much more than the movie. If you, you want to know way too true. much about what a Balrog is, I recommend reading the Cimmerillion. And when I say I recommend the reading reading the Cimmerillion, there's one person in my life I've ever recommended reading it to it that, and she very much enjoyed it. Uh, but it's one of my closest friends ever. The Cimmerillion is basically an encyclopedia about a fictional universe. Yep. Yep. Exactly. But. I mean, if you are that much in love with Lord of the Rings, I mean, it's probably like just a book of like Kama Sutra. It's for more the like reading a textbook than a novel. Yeah, for sure. But um, the soundtrack, Rich. Yes, I'm sorry. Let's get to I the soundtrack. Lost the red ear. But uh, yeah, <laughs> you're good. What I was saying in like the scope of that scene and all I ever think about are it's funny you mentioned that emotional part and they handle that so well. But, like, the build-up to that, I think it's such a drums-heavy track with, like, these war drums and horns as the orcs are charging. And then the moment that always sticks with me, actually, and this still, in my head, counts as as fair use of a soundtrack, is there's sort of this emotional swell as Gandalf's getting pulled, but then you lose sound completely. Like, mid-scream from Frodo, you just lose audio and then go to a complete shot of... uh, the score playing over this scene as you don't have any audio of what's actually happening to the characters. And it, it, it's manipulative. Then that is the right word to use, but use very correctly to elicit a certain feeling and really convey something to the audience in a, in a smart way. Yeah. I mean, that scene in particular is just, it's, it's like a singular raw emotion. Like everything that is happening is is that is happening on the screen is predicated on making you feel one of two emotions there because they finally escaped um they finally escaped the minds of moria and it's bright out it's it's the brightest scene in the entire movie um i i say that that's probably hyperbole but to me from my memory it is the brightest scene in the entire movie uh, just the sun is gleaming off of these rocks, but it's not like a happy sun. It's not a warm sun. It's a very cold looking sun. They've escaped, and I'm but I'm sure that's done with special effects. 
Exactly. Exactly. And like Rich is saying, there's no audio, but you see these people crying and just in despair and in confusion and in frustration and anger. Um, You see Aragorn holding Gimli back as he's trying to run back into the mines of Moria after Gandalf. You, you have Sam crying, like all these things are happening on the screen. And this, the soundtrack of just sad, uh, I think they're violins. Uh, playing in the background, you have this, this choir. It's like a hymn, singing this, uh, almost this, like a church hymn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And man, is it so affecting? But to speak in general to this movie, the soundtrack and what it does, obviously, it puts you in the mood, and it it keeps. I think it does such a good job of keeping the pace moving and f- making the the story, the movie, which is a three point five hour for the standard and the 4.5 hour for the extended edition not feel that long obviously you're so invested into the story if you're going to sit down and watch this movie hopefully and um you're invested in these characters you're invested invested in what's going to happen with this world because the world building has been great the pacing is awesome in this movie but i think that it is at that expert level because of the soundtrack and how it keeps everything moving and um obviously i don't i don't know enough about the music to talk about like the different scales that they use um the specific notage that they use i'm sure that they're you know if i were to look at it i'm sure that that particular scene we're talking about after they escape the mines of moria i'm sure that's in a minor scale um because usually that's used as kind of like the sad scale that's kind of how western culture views the minor versus the minor major scales um and plus like that deep breakdown in the music i don't think is necessarily belonging here to that level but i i really think that the the soundtrack does such a good job of pacing and i think that holds true throughout the whole trilogy as well i mean you look at the the second movie, The Two Towers, when they're doing the Battle of Helm's Deep, that is a really, really, really long on-screen battle. And it's an amazing battle. It's an amazing piece of cinema. But also, I feel like that that battle would probably get a little long-winded if not for the soundtrack. Absolutely. Uh, go ahead. Jump in. No, no. I was, I was just agreeing. All I was doing was agreeing with you. No, that works. <laughs> I can accept that. But no, the soundtrack is, is, yeah, I can't say enough praise about that soundtrack. I actually own them on CD from years ago. And I got um, them at the Sam Goody. Yeah. <laughs> I got them at the local, uh, what's the Sam Goody, the company who owns Sam Goody? Um, well, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of different store names. Is it like, did FYE buy out Sam Goody? FYE, that's the one I was thinking of. I don't know if they bought them out, but I was thinking of FYE. It's the same thing. We used that's to have a one. place uh, I just can't me f- called Coconuts that became a Sam Goody and that became an FYE. I kind of miss I kind of miss that era of just going into a CD shop and looking at CDs just, and then being yeah, like, oh, looking this at looks albums interesting. I'll go and, home yeah. look at it. Totally. It was kind of a cool thing to do. Like, on, like, if you had a free few hours, like, I'll just go to a record store and look it up. You used to do that all the time. I'm interested. Just look through like the clearance bin and like the the like metal or like punk section and just grab something that that uh, caught your eye. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Actually, I I want to reminisce, but that's that's for a different thing. We must talk thing. about we were rings. Talking about Lord of the Rings. 
We must talk about the rings. I of have power. things to say of Boromir. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's move on. The Fellowship, devastated by the loss of Gandalf, arrive at Lothlorien, another elf village ruled by Galadriel, the voice from the beginning of the film. She allows them to rest in Lothlorien. Later, while everyone rests, Galadriel tells Frodo that only he can complete this quest. Others will try to steal the ring from him, but he cannot let them. During these events, Saruman had been creating an army of Urukai, a larger form of orc who aren't afraid of the sunlight. Their task is to track down the fellowship, kill them, and retrieve the ring. The fellowship leave via boats, given to them by Galadriel, down the river to Parth... Ga- oh, I'm not going to pronounce this right. If I pronounce this incorrectly, uh, Lord of the Rings fans, I, I apologize. I should have looked it up in advance. Parth Galen? Galen? Parth Galen, I believe. I'm not exactly an expert on this. I'll just go with um, in terms of pronunciation, but I believe it's Parth Galen. That's how I've always thought it was pronounced. That's how I read it on the little maps. Yep. So if we pronounce it incorrectly, our apologies. An area at the outskirts of Gondor. I think here is as good of a time as any to reflect on everything that's happened within the Fellowship as everything is about to unfold and end for this first movie. From the moment that the Council meets up until now, it's clear that there's some tension among some of the members of the Fellowship. Aragorn and Boromir, Legolas and Gimli, Boromir and Frodo, Frodo and the rest of the Fellowship, so on and so forth. This becomes more clear... It becomes clearer, more evident if you watch the extended edition that shows a lot more of the doubt being sown at various parts of their journey, especially at Lothlorien. J.R.R. Tolkien, along with the adaptation given by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Peter Jackson, put on a masterclass of narrative with the constant twists and turns the relationships between the Fellowship takes. Rich... Do you feel like there is a level of satisfaction with the writing of this group within the first movie and its ending? I think so. Uh, for, for me, there absolutely is. because, And I think, especially in that extended edition, like you were saying, there's a certain chemistry between the whole cast here that makes those moments of, like, sown doubt. Uh, for example, what always comes to mind for me is that moment where Frodo drops the ring when they're climbing uh, the, on their way to Moria and Boromir holds it in his hand briefly and you see like that temptation building in it um, that, that just show the char- characters' internal struggles as well as their struggles with each other and, and Frodo sort of starting to lose trust and faith in other members of the Fellowship um, a- along with the doubt Boromir has in it himself and I think that's one of my favorite things about Boromir's character and you get to feel like you know him a little better even after he's gone in later films when you can see sort of this portrait of a man who had certain expectations thrust upon him and was dealing with his own doubts about his ability to actually be a good man and do what he knows to be the noble thing in the face of like this this ancient evil and this this great power yeah yeah so, and i i actually get the the pleasure you corrected me once, I get to correct you once. Go for so it. we make sure the fans don't come after us. But you said uh, 
Frodo drops a ring on the way to the Mines of Moria. He drops it on the way to the Caradras Pass. That because they're walking up. Yes, but before they they decide to go to Moria, I apologize. Yeah, yeah, it's right before they decide that. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that we don't get the fans after us. But no, um, no, you're absolutely right. I think Boromir is such a interesting, an interesting and tragic character. Um, as you're saying, you learn in the later films why he acts the way he does and um it's it's funny like a lot of the movie is spent with him being kind of content contentious and um argumentative but you still then you meet his dad and you're like oh i get bad for him well even before that like (laughs) the final scene with him in the fellowship you you still feel for him and um it's it I think it's just it that alone speaks to how amazing the writing is done by both um J.R.R. Tolkien and the adaptation group that I mentioned um all of them. It's just it it's so well done to to be able to adapt that to a screen and make it feel so organic and make you feel so emotional when Boromir meets his untimely end is it's just phenomenal i i'm blown away like even to this day how they managed to pull that off so effectively but i really that's what i love about the extended editions and that's why i can't recommend them enough is that there's so much they're not essential for the viewing but there's so much they add quite a bit even more it's even more enjoyable i mean like of course you have funny bits like when they're about to leave lothlorien and Legolas is going on this soliloquy about Lembus bread, about this amazing bread where you take just one bite and it fills up the stomach of even the hardiest of grown men. And then uh, um, Mary leans over to Pippin and says, how many, did you, how many did you eat? And Pippin says, three. And then he burps. Like, of course, there are those like little yeah, funny the, moments. The ever-hungry hobbits. Necessarily... They don't necessarily add to the overall thing, but it's really great character They add to the charm of the characters, yeah. Exactly, Um, and it's it's great for building relationships with those characters, but then you have the moments where um, Rich and I are kind of talking about, like, when they first get to Lothlorien, in the standard edition, it's like basically they get there, you see them kind of walking up the passes, and then they come to the council with Galadriel, and her husband, um, I'm spacing his name right now because I'm a terrible uh, Lord of the Rings fan. He also, I believe, has one of the three rings. If I he does, but I, I don't, I, I don't remember Maybe his I'm name not. either. To tell you the truth, he's he's such a a yeah yeah, yeah a yeah, yeah. background uh, set for the, these for particularly for this trilogy. Um, other stuff in the Tolkien Tolkien verse, he yeah. has uh, he, yeah. he has bigger yeah. roles. Right, exactly. But in this extended edition, when they get to Lothlorien. Before they meet with Galadriel and her husband, there's a moment that you actually see um, that you would see in the standard edition when Frodo looks in the Palantir, uh, or sorry, not the Palantir, uh, uh, Galadriel's mirror. That you like, you've never seen it in the film if you watch a standard edition, which is you have some of the people of the Fellowship staring at him with this these glares, these uncertainties, these doubts on their face. But when you watch the extended edition, you see that those scenes right before they meet with Galadriel, they're kind of sitting there 
reflecting, recuperating. They just went through this huge, difficult ordeal. And as he's sitting there, Frodo's sitting there, he's looking at the different members of the Fellowship, and they're all giving him these different looks. You see Legolas kind of glare at him. You see Sam and Merry and Pippin kind of look at him like, fuck, what do we get ourselves into? Um, kind of thing. And it starts to sow even greater trust issues. And that really pays dividends when you get to the end of the movie and what the choice that Frodo makes. But I think it's because of the adaptation and the way the narrative is written that it makes, even after four hours of watching a movie, you are still caught by surprise by some of the little twists and turns. You are still wanting to sit down and watch the next film because you were so entranced with what's going on on the screen. Yeah, absolutely. I I think to like to talk about like what a great job they do building the world. This doesn't at all put any doubt in like what their ability and Peter Jackson and his team's ability to craft this world and visualize it for us. I think there's something to be said for how much work Tolkien had done himself that there was so much to mine from because if you're not terribly familiar with his work, he didn't just write a couple fantasy novels. He crafted a universe and then wrote a children's book in it to start. Like the I I had a, the the pleasure a couple of years back when the Tolkien exhibit came to New York uh to the New York Public Library. I went to check it out and just the maps and things he had sketched set such a framework for like the feel of this world like seeing all these like diary entries and mostly honestly a lot of map work of like old maps of the misty mountains and the king under the mountain and all that stuff uh, it's just it's amazing the the right. trail he left for them to to build something out of yeah he he really put yeah yeah there's so much supplementary material to just the hobbit and the lord of the rings trilogy that he really he put a ton of work in and you can tell so, yeah, they, I mean, of course, the adaptation was expertly done, but the source material, there's so much there. Absolutely. That, yeah, they just had to pick the best things or the things that they felt like made the best flow of a movie or a trilogy of movies, rather, which they did well with Lord of the Rings Hobbit. That's another story, another podcast that I never want to do. Anyways, we're going to get it. back to the, <laughs> let's get back to the story. And this is, uh, this is the home stretch. Um, which I'm kind of surprised we haven't gone on as long as we have. I'm, I've, I've probably like you been holding back a lot on a lot of things I've wanted to say just because, uh, I think there's a I stuff I would rather gush. say for, for different points in the trilogy. And I think that's it. And I could see two towers actually that's probably also, being the longest of these podcasts. We do. I probably have the most to say about it that. It probably film. will be. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. All right. Let's do the mad dash to the end. After the fellowship lands ashore. Frodo wanders off. Boromir finds him and attempts to take their ring from Frodo. Frodo flees, but the Fellowship is attacked by the Urukai. Merry and Pippin are taken captive as the Urukai think one of them has the ring. Boromir is mortally wounded by their leader, Lurtz, which uh, in the books, he doesn't have that name, but in the movie, he has the name, and he actually... Uh, a little bit of trivia. His name is never said in the movie either. He was just credited as Lurtz in the credits. So, random fact there for you. Aragorn arrives and after a... Na- Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just laughing ahead, about Rich. the name thing. I love the prospect of naming the Orakai. Be like... 
Who gave him the name? Was it Saruman? Like, where is that coming from? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I do wonder, like, though, I don't know how nerdy I want to get about with it, but I do wonder who, who came up with that name, honestly. It's interesting and in how that came about. Like, let's give the, let's give the Urukai leader a name that we're never going to mention in the film that was never mentioned in the book. We're just going to put it in the credits. So, yeah, no, it's important. It that makes people me know. wonder if there's like a, makes me wonder if there's a director's cut of the extended edition where they did name him in the movie and they just never put it in who knows anyways back to the story aragorn arrives and after a nasty duel he beheads lurts he holds and confronts boromir in his last moments and he promises boromir that he will do what he can to unite the people of gondor and help them frodo is worried that the ring will tempt the other members of the fellowship so he decides to leave for Mordor alone. Sam finds him and chases after him, saying he will never leave Frodo's side because he made a promise to Gandalf. Frodo takes Sam with him. Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli let the two hobbits continue their mission while vowing to rescue Merry and Pippin. The last scene shows Frodo and Sam making their way down a mountain pass with Mordor and Mount Doom in the distance. So, three plus hours of watching the cinema version and that last shot leaving the viewer at a cliffhanger was so gut-wrenching. I was so invested that I didn't want the movie to end despite my ass being numb from the cheap theater seats and my stomach growling since I ate all of the movie theater butter popcorn two hours prior. The movie does such a good job of leaving you wanting more, even though you've been sitting around for hours. Even watching the extended edition and sitting there for four plus hours, I feel the same way. I remember years ago attempting to sit in a movie theater and watch all three extended editions back to back to back one day, but I tapped out somewhere halfway through The Return of the King. Rich, have you managed to complete a full watch in one day? I have. Um, it was an exhausting day. I planned with a few friends where we woke up at like 7 a.m. Uh, to just get this party started and go straight through. And we were dead by the end. Um, it was a lot. It's a lot, a lot, a lot. And we allotted for like breaks to get up and walk around and get some air outside and stuff. And But it, I, it was an experience. Yeah, it's... It's something that, like, in theory, you always talk about with your friends. Yeah, let's just do this marathon. Let's do it. And then you sit down and you're like, fuck. This is a yeah. really long thing that I it's, just committed to. It's a to. lot. Like, no matter yeah. how much you love it, it's a lot. It's true. And, like, I'm sure there are people out there like, I've done that marathon 27 times, you know? And, like, more power to you. Respect Good for you, you bro. Like, I can't. Fuck, I don't think I could... Yeah, like, I remember, so, if if my memory serves correctly, like, 10 a.m., or 10 or 11 a.m., the theater opened, we went in, we sat down, there was me and, like, nine other people. So, we all just sat far, kind of far away from each other to just be able to be in our own world. You watch the first film, half-hour break. So, I ran over to the Smith's, which is a grocery store, and then I grabbed some, like, pizza bagels and just scarfed them down really quick and, like, drank some fluids, like, got as much as I could in me. And then I went back in, watched The Two Towers, 
you know, I was squirming a few times trying to hold in my piss, you know, <laughs> during the movies. And then I ran back out, did the same thing again, bought more pizza bagels, ate them. And then I went back in for the return of the king. And I think it was like in the first hour to hour and a half, I started dozing off and I was like, fuck like, cause it's like really late at night at this point. I'm like, I can do this. Like, Nope, I can't fucking do this. <laughs> yeah, a lot. I felt so ashamed of myself. I had to go home. I was like, I can't do I this. I don't think you I have any sit. reason to be ashamed. Um, that's why when I did it, I did it in the comfort of uh, a friend's home. Like, I think that makes all the difference to be quite honest with you. I think that's smart. I, I would want to do that. And, like, that's one of the things I kind of, like, it's one of the only things I miss about um, DVDs and VHS is that, I don't know if you remember this. I miss commentary. Because these movies were so long and big. You had to, actually had to put in a second VHS or a, a second DVD. They said, they said like, the rest of this film is on with, with disc two or the on content, I- uh, VHS. I think the big green box version of fellowship with all the content is like six DVDs. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. And I still own those somewhere, but yeah, like, yeah I, I a lot of that well. is like the, the, uh, that's all like the, a lot of that is the supplementary material, but it was so cool because it was perfect. Like you could watch the first half of this film right up to the council of Elrond when that finishes. And then it's like insert disc two. And then you're like, okay, I can go take a quick break. <laughs> that's yeah but no now I, I love that like exact age it, it's such a good act break where they actually break the dvd off it really is like even if you got shit to do you could treat it just like th- those are two separate films you really could yeah yeah exactly exactly so yeah i yeah i i do still want to do that marathon someday and i will do it just to say i did it and then um we should do it over twitch with the patrons oh well the, the i was thinking about that but how would you do that because you can't really stream it. are those like, movies on the... amazon prime because if they are yes you can well would we get would we get in trouble for doing that no you you if if a movie is on amazon prime you can stream it on twitch okay well if it like like i that's don't know a... if they're I, I don't have amazon prime but if they're on amazon prime that's happening that's for sure happening but um yeah all right anyways what next question because we have three more questions and then Ask we away. are done and then i have a special thing i want to do at one, the end because i've been saving it but i'll let you do the questions first my man one legendary aspect of the extended edition is the sheer amount of behind the scenes content that is contained within them those special features have inspired so many people to pursue a career in film rich what did those special features mean to you? Quite a bit, honestly, because I actually said this a moment ago and saying, like, one thing I miss about uh, DVDs is commentary. I fucking, like, comment. I love director's commentary on everything. I love special features. I, um, one thing I always remember watching a ton of uh, in my younger days was the uh the director's commentary on uh the Futurama DVDs is one thing I always hold to people. I just love listening to and, and again I think it inspires different people in different ways and in a lot of ways it did inspire me to do a lot of the stuff I do now. I loved listening to writers talk about things they had made and like self-reflect after the fact and kind of it's funny when you see someone that's like a hero to you poo-pooing their own work um when they think like and it's just it's such an interesting insight to hear people that 
crafted this thing and it became like a part of their legacy just sort of discuss it in any in any form yeah yeah i i yeah i love some of those behind the scenes features like obviously i think this movie influenced a lot of developers or not developers um directors to start putting out their own behind the scenes content and for a while there on dvd it seemed like every single one had to have their own like special features and special behind the scenes content and so it was like you could watch when harry met sally and listen to like director commentary and it's like hey i don't really give a shit about that but these movies it's different because they talk so much about the special effects and they really were groundbreaking for their time i mean there's some of the special effects you go back now and some of them are a little bit obviously dated, um, but it, for the I'd say ninety five percent of it holds up. It's it's so mostly practical. Yes, yeah, exactly, and that's exactly what I was going to say. There are companies and uh, film uh, directors still designing their uh, special effects based off of this film, and even the Balrog, um, and I'm sure which is probably like, the biggest digital effect in yeah. that movie, still looks really good. It looks amazing, yeah. So, so many of the special effects are amazing. Uh, a lot of the costume design was next level shit. That you can, it's it's so fascinating to listen to them break that down because you don't even think about it, but they had hundreds of people wearing these different costumes, and yeah, super fascinating shit. So, oh, it's crazy. I, like for me, it didn't really necessarily it didn't necessarily inspire me, but I still found it really fascinating. I guess it, it inspired me in the in the sense of if you're going to create something, like go the extra mile, put all the details in there because totally. people notice that shit. People appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, Rich, having read the books, do you think that the Fellowship of the Rings movie does the book justice? I think so. Um, obviously, there's some slight altercations. I'll never forgive anyone for the omission of Tom Bombadil. Um, yep. But uh, I completely understand why you did why they did that. Uh, it's a really weird thing to put in. Uh, but I think it is a. I think it is the the best you could do, especially for the time. What people were willing to do with movie with uh, film adaptations and stuff at the time. Like I think if you were to do that now. Uh, coming off years of things like like Marvel films and stuff like that, uh, people would be more so encouraged to go all the way with like fully committing to the source material in every way imaginable and trusting the audience in that regard, which I do think is important. But I, I those movies still hold up exceptionally well, and they encompass the spirit of that first book, and it gets everything important you need in there. And uh, it's it's a I still think it's a great movie. Yeah, and like you brought up something that I didn't even really think about um, until you verbalized it, is that I think this film went a long way to proving that um, fans will show up for the things that they care about, for better or worse. They will show up for the things, and it goes a long way. It This film, this trilogy went a long way to kind of building that trust there, you know what I mean? Um this or Harry Potter, the Harry Potter uh, film series was another one that went a long way to kind of building that trust. No, but you're absolutely right. The uh, Tom Bombadil stuff would have been really fascinating. I think I kind of think about like who would they have cast 
to be in that role. You know what I mean? Like that would have been such a difficult thing to do. Martin Short, but um, yeah, I I, I think that would have been cool. And I think, like you're saying nowadays, um, because of Marvel and because of kind of the groundwork that Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter have laid in terms of getting fans to kind of commit to coming to film after film after film. I think granted, I would never want this. I don't think, but if they were to go back to reshoot the, the trilogy of books, but they took as men, much time as they needed to actually film them more accurately. I would probably be something like 10 mm. to 12 films. I think that would be more oh, feasible want... nowadays. You know what I mean? Like if they were to commit, I, I don't, I don't think that's what it would be. And I think Amazon is showing us this. I know it's a different story. I think it would be Game of Thrones style prestige TV if you were to do it today and be at that faithful with it. That's also true. It would be a a season of the Fellowship of the Ring, a season of the Two Towers, a season of the Return of the King. I mean, and you could be right you could be right about that. But I also think about like a lot of people right now are jumping back into cinema. They're like, fuck, I've been wanting to see a movie in, in the cinema for so long. And obviously you kind of have this this uh these two camps right now. I've obviously there are people in between. I'm not saying life is split up into two people kind of scenario, but you really have these people who it are is, though. very gung <laughs> who are very gung ho about going back to the theaters now that the world is kind of starting to open up, or I should say the US is kind of starting to open up. And then you have this camp of people who are like, man, I've just been sitting at home watching these these brand new movies in the comfort of my home. Why would I ever go back to the theater? But I feel like those... I miss the theater experience. You do or don't? I do. I do too. I do too. I think that um, if they were to kind of do these films like or like do a new uh, set of films on the book trilogy, but do it as close to being authentic to the source material as possible that you would have people popping up in the movie theaters for these movies. Even if it was like, Hey, this is the 11th or 12th movies. I think people would still be popping up. I mean, if they were doing the books justice. So I'd like, I feel like, no, I, I, think I feel like there's, the, the... I think that you're right, that it's certainly possible. It'd be prestige TV, but I also feel like it's equally as possible that they would be actual feature films. No, I, I've no doubt that people would show up for the feature films. I just think the the overall product would be better as TV. Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? I don't know. You don't know. We don't know. We're just speculating here. And that's fun. That's part of the fun. Who could say? But you know what? As with all great adventures, they must come to an end. And um, this it's customary around here. Um, and honestly, Rich, I know you and I could discuss this movie for hours and hours. We could discuss the trilogy for hours. We could discuss We're the books for hours. We're going to do it for, for at least hours. a few more hours in the future. <laughs> but let's leave some in the tank for the next two movies, as you were saying. So my final question is this. Would you recommend this movie to others to watch? Absolutely. Still do all the time to this day. Um, and with that Amazon series looming on the precipice, that's only going to bring up recommending this more and more to people who are, are curious about it after seeing that, I think. Yep. Yep. I, I mean, I think, I think it's pretty clear that we both would recommend this film. I'd recommend the standard edition. I'd recommend the extended edition, extended edition even more so. Um, and then if you like this stuff, go read the books. 
I mean, it's it's a little bit more. It's all on HBO Max. Rich, you said you had mentioned Pretty that cheap, you too. had something for the end of the show. Yes, I have no idea I wanted what this to is. Uh, save this for the end. Um, so when we talked about our favorite impactful scenes earlier, I obviously talked about Boromir's death scene. And one thing, because I knew we would talk about it again at some point, I wanted to leave off was one of the most impactful parts of this scene is uh, when they do sort of a funeral for Boromir uh, and they send him off in a boat. Aragorn and Legolas sing a song uh, to memorialize him as he leaves. And I want to end us by reading to you the translation of that Elvish song's first verse uh, from Aragorn, if you'd allow. If you'd allow. I mean, we can get some dope effects on this. I will allow it. So... I'll, so I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you the first, the first passage translated from Elvish. Through Rohan over fen and field, where the long grass grows, the west wind comes walking, and about the walls it goes. What news from the west, a wandering wind, do you bring to me tonight? Have you seen Boromir, the tall, by moon or by starlight? I saw him ride over seven streams, over waters wide and gray. I saw him walk in empty lands until he passed away. Into the shadows of the north I saw him, then no more. The north wind may have heard the horn of the son of Denethor. O Boromir, from the high walls westward I looked afar, but you came not from the empty lands where no men are. Thank you. Well delivered, my friend, well delivered. Actually, I didn't know, I didn't know that or I didn't remember it at least, so thank you. Thank you for recounting that. Yeah, that... <clears throat> You're welcome. That that whole se- sequence is just phenomenal. So, yeah, love those movies. And we didn't even like we didn't even touch upon like how phenomenal it is that um, languages were created for this world, like Elvish, Dwarvish, Entish. Oh well, yeah, they weren't. To be clear, they weren't created for the movie. No, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Tolkien had already done the legwork. Yeah, yeah, like before he even wrote the the actual novels, he had he had made the languages. Yeah, that's that's just the kind of work that he did, which is insane, absolutely insane. He's a man who worked who worked what is backwards by the standard of novels in a way I really appreciate, which was he crafted a world and its history, and then he set stories in it. Yeah, which is insane. Like it's it's insane to even think about doing something like that. And just more respect to him and um, his camp of people, because I know he had some people kind of helping him in his later years and after he passed to kind of keep some of those and fin- finish some of those stories and keep some of them going so respect to him in his camp c.s lewis was just writing him letters and he was like i get it see yes the lion is jesus pretty much pretty much but now that that's going to do it for the fellowship of the ring we will be doing the other two uh films in due time um i'm actually currently working on the script for the two towers full full transparency there and uh, we're going to be doing some games as well on the horizon. We we're actually talking about also doing a movie that just released at the time of us recording this, which uh, I'm excited. We're, that's because probably, I heard it's bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's probably the thing we're going to be doing next. Weirdly enough, this year is like turning this podcast into the movies one version of this. Usually, I'm okay games. with that. I, en- I enjoy talking about this, this uh, honestly this podcast has given us a justification to talk about movies when we want to and i do enjoy having a platform to do that on i do too i do too so nothing but love there so rich thank you so much for being here um i appreciate you being here um i was your host shay thank you so to happy you, we finally the got listener. to do this yeah i'm so happy so happy we got to do this been wanting to do it for months now uh thank you to you the listener for checking out our stuff uh again if you like what 
you just heard today uh you want to hear more from us head over to swordchomp.com where you can check out all the stuff that i listed at the very beginning of the show and um yeah stay tuned we'll have another episode probably uploaded next month thank you and take care No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll do it for real. That would have been so... Yeah. I was like, of all the directions you could have gone with this intro, I was not prepared for that. That's what you do for Two Towers. I will. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because this one doesn't make sense for it, but...